Cool, cool, cool. Cool, cool, cool. Tight, tight, tight. All right. We have a bunch of fun stuff today. We got some stuff. Stuff with Steph. Stuff with Steph. That's going to be my next podcast. Hello and welcome to another episode of The Bike Shed, a weekly podcast from your friends at ThoughtBot about developing great software. I'm Steph Vickery. And I'm Chris Toomey. And together we're here to share a bit of what we learned along the way. So Chris, I've been dying to know, did you rewrite the app? It's something that we discussed uh, maybe two episodes ago where you were contemplating as to whether an app should be rewritten. And I totally care how you're doing. I don't know how your week's going, but I have to get this question out first. This is like the million dollar question, yeah. Uh, Or hopefully far smaller than that, like $10,000 question, something like that. So the answer is a little bit complicated, but it's like a qualified yes. So in reality, I did not rewrite the app. No one has actually rewritten the app, but we have decided to rewrite the app. So yeah, to unwind the pieces there, the team that I was working with, that little application that we were working on, They've actually decided to invest more in that portion of their business. So it's one little small piece of their otherwise platform ecosystem. And they liked what it was doing. They wanted more of it. Unfortunately, my time and my schedule didn't quite match with what their needs were going to be moving forward. And we had identified that it did seem like it makes sense to build that out. So over this past week, actually, well, this had been going on for a few weeks, but they've now brought on someone else. I've transitioned off of the project, but we had a little bit of an overlap there to make sure we had some knowledge transfer and all of that. So the focus of my time towards the end of the, like the past three weeks was stabilizing the existing app, getting that in a good place. So to sort of like clear the deck for that new individual to come in and actually do the rewrite. And then on Monday of this week, we spent the day together, we paired a bunch, I sort of took him on a tour of what exists. Hopefully, he won't actually have to interact with that version of the application much. But we talked about what the rewrite would look like. Uh, It's going to go into Rails and be very simple. And everyone's very excited about it. But that work will be done, but by someone else. Wow. Okay. So you have paired with that person, brought them up to speed. So they're Mm -hmm. completely going to let go of the existing architecture and then re-implement the existing features in Rails? Yes. Awesome. Okay. And I'm curious, how do you how do you feel about it? Like walking away from it? And do you think it's something that this is kind of one of those interesting points because when someone has written an application and we get to that point of where we feel like it needs to be rewritten, it begs the question of do we think we'll do a better job the next time? Do we know more than we did before? And so I'm just kind of curious how you're feeling there as a second approach is taken to implementing this particular application. Do you feel like enough new knowledge has come to light that new decisions will be made that will put the team in a better place? Yes. So I, I think those are all the right questions just to like do the the meta conversation of thinking about rewriting an app. The first three times you ask that question, the answer should always be no. Like, should we rewrite it? No. Should we rewrite it? Definitely not. Should we rewrite it? Uh, maybe. And then you start to have the conversation. And so that was essentially the, the mode that we were in, uh, both myself and the CTO of the company that I was working with. We had the conversation two-ish times and both we're feeling the pain of the existing implementation, but recognize that it's too easy to just say, oh, we'll just rewrite it and that will be easy. But eventually, as I worked on more and more features, especially as I worked on features that spanned the front end and the back end of this application, it became clear that it would probably be beneficial to do so. And the main reasons are that the actual fundamental thing that this app is doing is not that complicated. It's essentially a form that allow users to sign up 
they make some choices and then on a schedule information is sent to them later on so it's a pretty simple app or it has the possibility of being a simple app there's not fundamental complexity there but the implementation that exists now is very complicated it has a node backend with mongo which is not a preferred technology for this organization they're much more on the postgres end of the spectrum and they weren't really leveraging anything about mongo that was just the choice that the developer made initially and then there's a view client-side rendered, client-side routed application on the front end. And the interactions between them were very complicated. The authentication mechanism was using email-based magic links and JWTs, sometimes in cookies and sometimes in links. And there's just a bunch of complexity that had just sort of shown up that the plan for the new version is it's a Rails app. It's got a form. That's it. Knowing that there's that level of simplification that can happen then a rewrite sort of makes sense. And to put it into a technology stack that the rest of the organization is more happy to support long-term and sort of all of those ideas. Additionally, when we first started talking, they were not planning to invest heavily in this platform. They were just thinking, let's stabilize it. Let's fix a couple bugs, add one or two new features, but then we'll probably let that one just sit. But they've actually changed their mind on that front and decided it's an area for further investment. They want to add a whole bunch of new features, maybe expand it. And so with that in mind, the cost associated with adding any new feature became more relevant. And so when you mix that all up, the calculus suddenly came out that like, yes, it makes sense. Let's rewrite it. Awesome. Yeah, all of that sounds really good where they're taking on more technologies and languages that they're more comfortable with. Like you said, switching over to like Postgres and it's going to make the team happier. They can iterate on it. Also, the simplification of the existing feature sounds really nice. So that helps them get that MVP out into the world. Yeah, all of that sounds great. So yeah, I, I hope that it goes uh, exceedingly well. I'm, I'm hoping I can stay in touch and see how that goes. Uh, like I said, my schedule just didn't quite match with that need for uh, essentially a bunch of additional work to both do the transformation and then the additional feature development that they wanted. So I'm unfortunately not going to be able to do that work, which sounds so fun, like Greenfield's new Rails app, just build a whole thing. But um, I am happy that the, the rest of the team that's there is going to get to do that. So but yeah, that's the story of the rewrite, a time that I think the rewrite was the right choice. But uh, yeah, what else is up in your world? So I'd love to chat about Ruby 2.7 deprecation warnings, uh, specifically the warnings for how keyword arguments are changing in Ruby 3. So Ruby 2.7, have you upgraded to Ruby 2.7 or are you still on 2.6? Actually, thinking back, uh, there was an app that I was working on and the other developer upgraded to 2.7 just because it was they just started a new fresh system. They were on 2.7. They bumped us up to 2.7, and I immediately reverted it because it caused a ton of deprecation warnings. So I have dipped a toe into the waters of 2.7, but then I ran away. Yeah, uh, that makes sense. <laughs> uh, so a lot of those deprecation warnings are what's been on my mind because my client project, we have upgraded to 2.7. And from what I've seen, it's gone pretty smoothly. We do still have a lot of the deprecation warnings, but they're not specific to our application. It's for a number of the libraries that we're dependent upon. So for anyone who hasn't seen those deprecation warnings, they're there when you go to 2.7, because in Ruby 3, uh, Ruby 3 will no longer accept passing options hash when a method expects keyword arguments. So there's some default behavior that exists right now that Ruby is trying to create a migration path forward for everyone. So when we get to Ruby 3, instead of just failing will have already gotten to that graceful period. But there are a number of people that have reached out and said that the warnings are very noisy and hard to deal with. And I'll circle back to that in just a bit because I read an interesting bit from Matt's where he was taking feedback from the community about those warnings. 
But first, to talk about those warnings, because when I first read them, they're not very intuitive to me. Like, I, I didn't really understand, like, what the warning wanted me to do to resolve that uh, concern. So one example is using the last argument as keyword parameters is deprecated. And I thought, okay, cool. What is that, that the mean? words of the message? That's the words of the message. Yep. Because as you said it, I was like, I don't know what that means. And then, oh, that's your example of we don't know what that means. Gotcha. I started going through some examples to try to help myself understand, like, when I see that warning, what does that mean? What do I need to change about how I'm calling a method or defining a method? So given that print method that accepts that name keyword argument, if you see that warning because you're passing a hash to it, there's two ways to resolve that warning. One is you could keep passing the hash, but prefix the hash with the double splat operator to indicate that the hash should be treated as keyword args, or you can stop passing a hash and pass a keyword argument. I didn't realize the double splats was going into and out of hashes. I basically only use it for like capturing keyword arguments and then forwarding them. But I think of it as always being in the keyword arg space, like a special different thing, but apparently it's going to hash. Good to know. I had the same thing where I was like, I haven't really used double splats that often. So it took me a little bit to understand like why double splats are the recommended fix in this case. So yeah, I'm with you. And then one of the other warnings, just provide another example. Uh, this warning reads that passing the keyword argument as the last hash parameter is deprecated. How's that one feel to you? Confusing. <laughs> cool. Me too. All right. But if we use that same method, let's say we still have our print method, but let's redefine the parameters that it expects. So if we have def print and then we have a first positional argument, we can still use name. And then the last parameter is using that double splat. And so it's expecting the keyword args. So if you call print without that positional argument, but just a keyword argument, so let's say we were passing in like age colon 52 to our print method, but we didn't pass in like that first positional name argument, Ruby converts that keyword argument, that age 52 to a positional hash argument. So when we call print age 52, it's going to treat the keyword argument as the first positional argument. So when we call that print name, it's going to think that age 52 is a hash and that's the name value. I think I get it. I also think that I deeply love the flexibility and the sort of human friendliness of Ruby syntax. But man, do I feel for the people who actually do the implementation work there because this sort of stuff is so subtle and it's so pervasive. Like I think about Rails as a code base. I, d I assume they've made the upgrade, but there's just so much usage of this sort of stuff of hash-like because Rails has been around for forever and they have lots of methods in their API that take a grab bag of arguments. And so I think they were originally implemented as hashes, probably have been converted to keyword arguments at some point, but maybe need to keep backwards compatibility. And I don't even know what that looks like. Uh, I did see a blog post from GitHub recently. Eileen Yushatel was talking about upgrading to 2.7 there at GitHub, and apparently they had 11,000 deprecation warnings that they had to go through. Uh, so now you've got me scared for the next time I have to jump into this, although apparently there were some nice speed boosts that they got from it, as well as paving the way for Ruby 3.0, which is definitely a thing that we want. But yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, I saw that article that you mentioned by Aline. It's uh, really helpful because they talk about how they went about addressing all of those deprecation warnings because that can be overwhelming to see. And yeah, it seems the complexity came about when keyword args were introduced in Ruby 2 and then trying to keep the backwards compatibility of being able to pass a hash, but then still treat them as keyword args or then in reverse pass the keyword args, but have them behave as like a positional hash. And that has gotten to the point with the Ruby team is like we have enough 
oddities in our code that aren't even necessarily bugs. It's just more of a question of we're not sure how the code should behave at this point. And then to address those concerns is to say, we're going to actually separate the idea of this positional hash and then keyword args. And you now need to explicitly tell us if you're going to pass like keyword args or if you're passing in a hash. So the Ruby Lang website has a post that covers some more examples that talk about the changes in keyword behaviors. Uh, there's also some new stuff that's being added. So non-symbol keys are now allowed in keyword args arguments. So that's something that's coming along or part of 2.7. So like strings or what other than symbols would you use for a keyword argument? Numbers? Strings are the ones that I've seen. Yeah. I, I guess there's, like, you can't <laughs> assign to a number because that's not how numbers work. You can't say 42 is now John. That's not, <laughs> I think. So I guess it has to be strings. That's the only thing that comes to mind, but huh, yeah. interesting. Yeah, they do say non-symbol keys, but yeah, that's the only one I think of too. And that's the example that they had as well, was that you can now use a string key as part of like your keyword args. I don't know. I haven't tested it out, but that's something that they're they're saying is now available. And then circling back where you're talking about like all the deprecation warnings and how that can be scary to conquer some of those. I saw a conversation that Matt's was having with the community about these warnings and folks that were saying that they're too noisy, please make them stop. I saw that Matt's alluded to stopping the noisy warnings in 2.7.2. I haven't followed up and I'm not really confident like where we're at because I think Matt's made that comment earlier in the year. So perhaps it's shifted since then. And in addition to adding the silencing of the noisy warnings, specifically for the keyword args, also encouraging the use of a warning gem that's created by Jeremy Evans. And it's a pretty cool gym for what it does, uh, because it will give you a couple of options where you can have the deprecation warnings just for your application. You can also print backtraces for the keyword argument deprecation warning, so you can understand more of where that code's getting called and how it's being called. And then you can also turn them into errors. So if you truly want to just go ahead and raise and then run your test suite and start to fix errors that way, that would be another way to approach it. But they are still pushing forward with the new keyword argument behavior in Ruby 3 as planned. So I'm, I'm intrigued that there's the idea that a version of Ruby is going to roll out that removes the deprecation warnings, but yeah, we're still plowing ahead with the changes. Because that would make me nervous. That would make me far more nervous to not see the deprecation warnings if I know I still need to plan for a breaking change in Ruby 3. Mm, that is interesting. I've not seen the gem, although I'm, I'm super intrigued, the warning gem that you were talking about, because that sounds like a, some a nice utilities to work with this sort of stuff. But I definitely side on the, I want the sea of green dots when I run RSpec, and I care deeply about that. And one could argue that I care too much. And that it's not a useful thing to chase down. But the thing that I do believe about it is if you start to have these deprecation warnings that you then just go numb to and you don't care, you see them, that just happens and then they stream by and whatever. But now a new one comes in and you ignore it. You don't notice the addition of that new one because you uh, there's always some noise in the output of the tests. And so I worry about that, especially when it's a wall of noise. Like It's so easy for a new one to sneak in there. And so a wall of deprecation notices is essentially useless in my mind because you're just going to ignore it. And so I wonder about, like, could I say I want to ignore the deprecation warnings for this version of this other gem that I'm using because it's outside of my control to use it. Once they upgrade, Dependabot will tell me about it. I'll get to pull that in, and then the deprecation warnings will come back if they're still unfixed, or if it's been fixed, then we're good. But like, allow me to very fine grain say, for Sprockets version 2.7, I know that that's got some warnings, but I can't fix it. So for now, don't tell me about that. But do tell me about usage in my app, and do tell me about other new gems that we add or things like that. 
Yeah, I'm with you. I like that idea that you can concretely address a warning that you have because otherwise it sits there and you just, you don't know, has someone actually addressed this? And like you mentioned as well, you're going to miss new stuff. So I really like what it sounds like this gem offers that you could say, only show me the deprecation warnings that are specific to my application. Uh, at least that's what I'm hoping it does because mm. that would be really nice. So if you know there's a gem that you're dependent upon that's causing some of these warnings, but you don't have the capability to help them update or you just need a while they need some more time to update, then you can address that now to say, we're going to silence these because it's not in our control. And we'll wait till, yeah, Dependabot or announcement comes along that we can upgrade. So yeah, keyword arguments, uh, they're changing. And it's been fun reading through just a number of the community discussions about the really interesting bugs that people have ran into or confusing behavior, especially when you're combining like the single splat argument with like double splat arguments. If you have like a method that accepts like a positional argument, a single splat, and then a double splat, which I haven't done much because then I was thinking about it too. Like I realized I think some of these changes are a little harder for me to really understand how they're changing and why, because I just haven't used that many like rest operators where I'm taking in a bunch of like unknown parameters and then either coercing it to a list or coercing it into a hash. I feel like that sort of stuff comes up more in library code. Like the only place that I use it is in quote method objects where I'll have the class method that then immediately calls new with the same arguments and then calls run or something like that. And so I want to basically forward everything through. And so I'll use star args, star star keyword args, and then just forward them through to new. But that's the only place that I ever use it. And I never have like a positional, then a rest, then a keyword, then the rest of the keyword or anything like that, like mix and match. But I could see that happening in a lot of library code, like Rails's template tag helpers, those sort of things where it's like, we accept a lot of stuff here, some of them names, some of them otherwise. And yeah, that's not a world that I spend much time in either. Are you aware that there is a um, delegation operator? I think it's part of 2.7. No, but it sounds like a thing I should be aware of. Uh, you just made me think of it and the example that you were sharing. I don't know enough details. I just remember seeing as I was reading through some of the 2.7 changes that there is a forwarding operator and it's three dots. So it's just dot, dot, dot. So if you were to pass something into a method, but you don't really care about the parameters, you just want to forward it along to the next thing. It sounds like that may be something that you'd be interested in is that dot, dot, dot. Very, very much so. But yeah, definitely look forward to if you do figure out anything or write the canonical blog post on this topic, then I, I very much look forward to reading that. We're going to take a quick break to tell you about today's sponsor, Scout APM. Scout APM is quickly becoming my go-to performance monitoring tool for Rails apps. I love opening it up to see a prioritized list of issues that I can quickly knock out before end users ever see them. With the weekly digest and alerts, I can rest easy knowing that Scout will let me know if issues arise. Ultimately, Scout APM empowers developers to spend more time building great products by minimizing the effort required to identify and resolve performance issues. Scout's developer-centric approach quickly pinpoints N plus one queries, memory bloat, and other abnormalities. Their tracing logic saves me a ton of time by tying bottlenecks back to the line of code causing the issue. So give Scout a try for free today and you'll have the performance insights you've been dreaming of within four minutes. Sign up through scoutapm.com slash bikeshed. That's all one word, B-I-K-E-S-H-E-D. And Scout will donate $5 to the open source project of your choice when you deploy. As an example project that you might be interested in, Inertia.js is a great one that I've talked about a few times on the episode. And uh, they could be a great place to send that money to. So give it a try. And thanks again to Scout for sponsoring this episode of The Bike Shed. 
shifting gears ever so slightly, uh, we have a listener question that uh, we're going to read now. And again, just a reminder, folks, we absolutely love getting listener questions. We love answering the things that are on the top of your mind. So please don't hesitate to send them in. Hosts at bikeshed.fm via email, or you can send either of us on Twitter. Uh, But this question is actually similar to a question that we've gotten a few times. So we're going to include some references to previous answers, but there's also some unique stuff in here. uh, And it's about Ruby popularity. So this question comes in from Facundo and he writes, Dear Steph and Chris, first of all, the mandatory, I love your podcast and you make my days a lot better message. Thank you, Facundo. That's so kind of you to say. Uh, My question is related to the current situation of Ruby. Are you concerned that Ruby appears to be losing popularity more and more and that the big users of Ruby are walking away from it, e.g. Twitter, GitHub? Please refer to Stack Overflows and GitHub survey reports below. Uh, So there's a couple of links that he sent included in this, and there's actually a very recent uh, State of Ruby 2020 survey. So there's a couple of different data points that we can reference in here, but I think the core question holds. And then... Additionally, he asked one more question in here, which is, if you had to choose a different programming language to master, which one would it be and why? So there's a quick set of references to previous episodes where we answered vaguely similar questions. Uh, In episode 217, we answer encouraging companies to use Ruby and Rails and asking how we identify ourselves as developers. In episode 208, we answer what makes Rails successful. And in episode 234, we answered the complex trade-offs between craft preferences and business needs. Uh, So not exactly the same, but definitely we talked about similar stuff in those so yeah, Ruby popularity stuff. What do you think? I think that, you know, it's just, it's on the outs. It's going away. Uh, we're never going to write Ruby again in a year from now. I, uh, I'm just teasing. Oh, I Rough. <laughs> just really rough <laughs> forecast. <laughs> I have some interesting feelings about this because uh, the first time that you and I have seen questions like that, I'm always intrigued that we've seen that question come up several times that it feels like a concern from folks that they are very interested in, like, am I still using the right technology? At least that's where I'm presuming that sort of like that question is coming from. And we're using popularity to help define, like, am I using the right thing? And it may just be, I think you've mentioned this before, but it may just be part of that. Like Ruby isn't necessarily like the cool kid anymore. So it's not as talked about. It's not as hyped. There's not as much marketing content that's being generated around Rails. It's very stable. It's still progressing. Same for Ruby. And because there's already so much content out there, like maybe there's just not a lot of new voices that are contributing to that environment. While for like newer languages that are coming out, there's a lot of new people that are really getting into it and getting excited and they're talking about their experiences. So that would be kind of one of my first inclinations as to why people feel that way. I realize I'm dancing around the answer though, because my answer is in the broad since that Ruby is losing popularity and since that it's a great choice for companies to use. Uh, I can't speak directly to like a bunch of developers, but there is a really great survey that was produced by Planet Argon. And there's a really good episode with Brittany Martin and Robbie Russell on the Ruby on Rails podcast, where they speak specifically about the Rails community survey. And they receive responses from over, I think over 2000 individuals from like 92 countries that covers a wide variety of topics specific to Rails. So the goal of that survey is to really get an understanding of where Rails stands as a framework in 2020. Granted, it's most people that are very interested in Rails that are then going to respond to that survey, but that gave me some insight as to how comfortable and confident people are feeling with Rails. And there's one particular question that really stood out to me, and that was, I feel the Rails core team is shepherding the project in the right direction. And almost 80% of responses were agree or totally agree. 
And that to me speaks volumes as to like how many people are going to continue to use a language in a framework and then how popular it's going to continue to be and the fact that more people are going to pick it up and evangelize it. So that's my initial hot take. How about you? That felt like far more than an initial or hot take. That was a nuanced and I think well thought out answer. But yeah, I share all of that. To answer the pointed question, no, I'm not concerned about Ruby losing popularity. Uh, and maybe that's because I'm getting to a point where I complain about people sending me text messages and I want email. Like, I don't care about being hip at this point. That's a, that's a thing that's become true about me. But more so, popularity as a metric on its own is useful, but it's not actually measuring the things that I care about. I care about, can I do good productive work? Can I continue to get paid to do that work and not have to sacrifice on any of my values? And is it stagnating or is it continuing to evolve and stay up to date with you know what's happening in the world? And as you said, the, the responses about the Rails core team and the way both Ruby and Rails are moving, those are great. And I certainly feel like I can still find plenty of work in that world. I know of many, many companies that are starting new applications now and still reaching for Rails because it's a great option for building a business pragmatically. So yeah, I'm not concerned. <laughs> there are definitely plenty of trends that point to something. But I think, like you said, it's probably, that's just not the hip coolest thing anymore. But it's still got plenty of work and interest and ongoing effort and blog posts and Stack Overflows and all of the things that I actually care about. But yeah, so shifting around, there is one other question embedded in there, which I'm interested in your answer to, which is, if you had to choose a different programming language to master, which one would it be and why? Uh, I knew you were going to have fun with that one <laughs> and wondering what it might be. So before I, before I jump to that one, I do have one last thought. I can't speak for ThoughtBot in the sense that we still very much enjoy developing with Ruby on Rails. It's something that's still very much like a pleasure to work with and something that we often use for a number of clients. Uh, in fact, I was talking to someone uh, just today. They were shifting from a project over to a Rails project, and they hadn't been in the Rails ecosystem for about a year. And they commented on just like how great it felt to be back and to feel very productive out immediately from the beginning. And yeah, they, they're very happy to be back in the Rails. So I can say from ThoughtBot's perspective that it hasn't lost popularity with this team, that we still very much enjoy it. As for, ooh, for what other language? So if I can't have Ruby... I'm in that fairly like language agnostic state where I don't know if there's like a particular language that I would cling to. I can say that I really enjoy developing with Elm and Elixir, but honestly, at the end of the day, I'm going to go where I admire the team. I like their collaborative process. And like you said earlier, I get paid. So I don't know if, I don't know if you know this about me, but I'm all about the cash. Cash rules everything around, Steph. I do get that about you. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, I do I do very much enjoy Elm and Elixir. For the bit of time that I was in Scala, I enjoyed that as well, but it just doesn't have the same like collaborative environment that I feel that I would get from Elixir and Elm. So I'd probably gravitate there first. I don't know how many companies use Elixir though. So that's my only hesitancy is like, I don't know if I would push really hard into Elixir. If Armand's listening to this episode of ThoughtBotter that loves Elixir, he's probably like, oh, I know so many <laughs> right now. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, I don't know how many companies are using it. I know of a couple, but that would also weigh a factor in my decision is uh, how easy is it going to be for me to find a, a job with Elixir? But in a perfect world, well, a non-perfect world where I can't have Ruby, but there's lots of companies using Elixir. That's where I'm going. How about you? What would you choose? Yeah, it's uh, it's an interesting question that if I were actually having this conversation with someone, there would be multiple follow-on questions that would then inform it. Uh, because if, if the question is, 
well, you can't use Ruby, but you still want to build web applications, which is probably true. I would likely reach for PHP and Laravel, if we're being honest. I haven't actually used them, so that's the thing. But looking at the way that community is moving, it's the best other example of the pragmatic ethos that I see in Rails, but in a different language and community. PHP still scares me a bit, but uh, I hear it's had some some great upgrades over the years. Otherwise, I think maybe Rust Rust seems like it would really expand what I can do with computers. I've, I've spent so much of my focus on web development, and I'm interested, actually. I've been sort of watching, is Rust web ready yet, I think is the name. There's a website that actually is like that domain, but it answers the question like, how comfortable should you feel doing a, a web app in Rust? And it's like, eh, right now, but it's heading in that direction. But for doing lower level systems, operating system building, open SSL replacements or Servo, the engine for a future potential browser, those sort of things, Rust is very, very interesting to me because it's just so different than what I've done. So that might be an answer. But yeah, given any number of constraints, my answer would be slightly different. Maybe I'd learn a Lisp, because why not? That seems like fun. I've never learned one. And they're weird in a good way, I think. So, yeah. I'm really glad that you mentioned PHP and Laravel, because I've also heard really good things about that community as well. Yeah, so that that would also be one that I'd be interested in. I've never written PHP, so I'm also skeptical. But then again, I have some friends that absolutely love it, so I'd be willing to give it a go. And now we're going to take a quick break to tell you about today's sponsor, Indeed. One of the greatest challenges we all face is taking all the information that's available and knowing where to focus. It's the same with hiring. With Indeed, you have access to the largest pool of talent and can hire the right people fast. Indeed.com is the number one job site in the world because Indeed gets you the best people fast. Unlike other sites, Indeed gives you full control and payment flexibility over your hiring. You only pay for what you need, you can pause your account at any time, and there are no long-term contracts. Plus, Indeed provides powerful tools to make your search that much easier, like sponsored jobs, which are shown to be three and a half times more likely to result in a hire. With 73% of online job seekers visiting Indeed each month, Indeed is going to get you the most important hire you need, just like they have for over 3 million businesses. Right now, Indeed is offering listeners a free $75 credit to boost your job post, which means more quality candidates will see it fast. Try Indeed out with a free $75 credit at Indeed.com slash Bikeshed. That's all one word, B-I-K-E-S-H-E-D. This is the best offer available anywhere. Go right now to Indeed.com slash Bikeshed. Terms and conditions apply. Offer valid through September 30th. Thanks to Indeed for sponsoring today's episode of The Bike Shed. So pivoting just a bit, a topic that you and I have had on our list of topics that we've wanted to bring up, but haven't found quite the right time, but it seems like today, maybe that day, is talking about 10x engineers. What are they? How'd that become a thing? How do we feel about them? I'm going to pause there and start with your initial reaction. Sure. Are they a thing? I don't think so. Initially, we put this on the list a long time ago, like uh, a little over a year ago, when there was an absolutely amazing Twitter thread that was making the rounds that it was very much on that line of, is this serious or is this parody? But it was a person describing 10x engineers and how you can find them in the wild. And it had somewhat nonsensical things like, the terminal will always be black and they will have keys such as I, F, and X are usually worn out as opposed to A, S, and E, which would be worn out for email senders. I don't know. I've never worn down the keys on a keyboard, I'm pretty sure, but uh, I'm not a 10X engineer, I guess. I love how I can tell you're using your slightly like sarcastic voice <laughs> when you're reading slightly. those traits. 
Uh, 10x engineers can convert, quote, thought into, quote, code in their mind and write it in an iterative fashion. Uh, so basically, the idea of a 10x engineer, at least as it exists in sort of mythical popular culture, is there are these just outlier performers that can just sit down, bang it out, and produce wild amounts of code, 10 times the amount that anyone else could produce, any normal engineer. And there are a lot of things about that. The community responded, you know, again, couldn't actually tell if this was parody. If it, I still hope it was parody because, man, spot on, but I don't think it was. But I think you and I probably are in agreement that we don't really believe in this. And actually, there are some complicated ideas embedded in there that are probably worth unwinding. But yeah, I don't think 10x engineers are a thing. I don't think the idea of producing 10 times the amount of code being a good thing, that, that seems bad, actually. You need to work as part of a team no one individual can carry things that way. Uh, you got to share. You got to convince other people to use your code. Even if you are the best person on the team, the architect, a big part of that is introducing the other people on the team to the code that you've written, to the patterns that you've identified, and enabling them to do the work. And there's definitely some stuff in here about the 10x engineers or loners and avoid meetings and come in at 10 a.m. and don't really, they sit in the corner and they're broody and allowed to be rude, uh, which I don't like that either. <laughs> I love that. We should just return it to broody engineers. That's what the 10x engineer truly means. They are a broody engineer. <laughs> So I was intrigued when I realized that the idea of a 10x engineer isn't really a new idea. The concept of a 10x engineer is rooted, I think, in a paper that was like back in 1968. It was a study that presented data that saying the best programmers can produce 10 times the amount of an average engineer and what they produce. So based on that, I mean, I have to admit the idea is tantalizing. And I understand why people get engrossed in the idea of a 10x engineer, because I too would love to be such a great developer that I can produce 10 times the amount of work as another engineer. That would be really great for my ego. I also do believe that there are developers that are incredibly productive, that they can be as productive as two, maybe three other developers. I'm always really impressed by the amount of talent that we do have in our community. And I really want to celebrate those people that have worked really hard to become exceptional at their job. But my problem with 10Xers is not with the individual, but it's with the culture that excuses harmful, toxic, elitist behavior. So the list that you just shared, which has a great example of people assigning value to meaningless traits and showing what's almost an eagerness to overlook terrible behavior in favor of the illusion of accelerated productivity. And I think that's why the community pushes back so heavily against the concept of a 10Xer is because we don't want this figure to be glorified. Most of us have probably worked with someone who fits that category and fits that description, and it's a pretty miserable experience. So I do believe there are developers that can be as productive as, say, like two or maybe three engineers. I also would very much suspect that there are T-shaped developers, and they have a broad set of experience and skills, and they're the ones that can help co-founders deliver that MVP and help teams speed up feature development. But I don't want to advocate for the idea that we're going to excuse terrible behavior to others just for this idea that you can be productive. Because in my mind, that skill of being able to work with others is just as important, if not more important, than your ability to write code. Yeah, that definitely all makes sense to me. Uh, and I think there's an idea in there that you were sort of brushing up against, but the idea of iteration and it's so rare that the software is well-defined enough that all we need is that incredibly capable developer to go hide in a cave for three weeks and come back with, quote, the system, and now it's done and it's built. 
Like I think just about everything that you and I believe about building software is that it is iterative and that you build the smallest thing that you can, but then you put it in front of people and then the people inform you that you are wildly off base and you need to fundamentally pivot or change the structure of things or re-architect it. And the loner mentality, the off on their own, just doing the work and quote, building the system just does not mesh with that at all. So that stereotypical version of the 10x developer definitely uh, I think is actually a bunch of anti-patterns bottled up Uh, but you did start to poke at something that I think is interesting which is 10x or the number 10 setting that aside there are developers who are I think more effective and there are certain things that I think do help individual developers just be more productive so you talked a little bit about the t-shaped developer or the ability to build a complete system So I think that is an interesting measure. And in terms of anyone who's listening who might aspirationally want to say, like, how do I grow as a developer? I think these are some things that you might consider as directions that you want to pursue. So one is the ability to build a whole system. I personally really value the ability to say, like, yep, the thing that you want to build, I can build that. That's actually one of my, like, things that I cling to and I've struggled with, actually, as the world has gotten more complicated. But from the database all the way out to the forms and the UI and the the styling and things like that, I want to be able to do the entirety of that. That's not a requirement by any means. You can definitely specialize in parts of that, but that's something that can make an individual able to have an outsized impact within a code base. But with that as one, what are some other thoughts that you have around how an individual can personally be more productive? And then I think we should circle back to how how does someone actually multiply the work of a team? But yeah, for individual productivity, what stands out to you? Oh, okay. Yeah. I like that other bit that you just alluded to about how you actually help the other folks on your team be more productive. Because uh, to me, that's the biggest part and biggest trait of someone who is a really exceptional developer. For I figured personal- you would. <laughs> you, you just know where I'm at. For personal productivity, I think that one of the biggest things that I have learned is um, time boxing, which may sound kind of oversimplified as like a strategy for being more efficient and effective. But I have used that strategy to push me out of my comfort zone because I'm one of those individuals in the beginning where I would work on code a long time and feel like it had to be perfect before I showed it to anybody. And so time boxing to a point of like, I get to work on this, I get to follow my instinct, and then I'm going to push it up for other people to respond to and give me feedback on. And I'm going to give myself a time limit for how long I have for that. That's been incredibly helpful for me to then like follow instincts and push forward and get feedback and also reach out for help. So time boxing is one of my favorite strategies for really recognizing like, what do I know? What can I implement right now? And what areas do I feel weak with something that takes me longer than that time boxing? And that's something that I could look into to strengthen and maybe pair with somebody. I think tests are the other way that make me really efficient because I want that concrete knowledge that I'm progressing forward and then I'm not breaking anything and I'm not spending time manually testing something because that takes a lot of time. I think the other thing that helps me be efficient, this may sound counterintuitive. I'm curious how you'll feel about this, but reading quality code that my colleagues are producing because I'm learning a lot of tricks and tips from them and understanding the system as a whole if they're working on a different part of the system that I haven't touched, but then that could come in handy later for a while I'm working on something or I see a new pattern that they're using that I'm really interested in and I want to talk to them about or something that I can use as well. So I find that, and this kind of circles back to DHH's point about we're more about writers. I I don't want to take away our engineer cred, so I don't... (laughs) So we can keep our engineer cred, but add to that our writer cred. And one of the paths to becoming a really great writer is to also read a lot. So I feel the very same with being very efficient and effective with writing code is that I have to read a lot of great code to also become a great writer. Yeah, unsurprisingly, I'm I'm very much uh, thumbs up on that. I 
love reading the code that the rest of the team that I'm working with is producing, but also more generally. I think one of the patterns that I see with developers that I've observed to be particularly capable are that they tend to have a very wide knowledge base. They're following different communities, different frameworks. They have perhaps tried out different languages and understand the nuances and the choices and the trade-offs in those. And they've frankly just read a lot of code as a result of that. And they're able to bring those ideas back to anything that they're working on. So we may be in a Rails code base, but it turns out this work that I did in C at some point may materially impact the way that I choose to architect that system. And so I may be working on a Rails code base, but I may take something that I learned in Scala or in Elm and bring those ideas back. So, you know, Ruby has lots of nils everywhere, but that's that's a thing that we run into constantly. Is there a way that we can protect that? Actually, yes, there are these patterns that we can pull from other languages or at least have in the back of our mind as informing the work that we're doing. And so broadly reading, readers uh, are good writers. I like the way you tie that into the more literary world. But yeah, that, that definitely checks out for me. I think the other pattern that I've seen in particularly efficient developers is they are excellent at debugging. They almost never get stuck. I've continually tried to refine this in my own workflow. Because man, do I hate those days where I spend multiple hours chasing down the same bug and I just can't pin it down. I can't come to understand it. But there are other developers that I've observed where they almost have this binary search approach where they just know where the bug might be hiding. They have a great intuition about it, but they also have a methodical process as to how to go about debugging and constraining down the minimum unit of failure so that they can then actually resolve the bug. And watching that in practice is fantastic. It's one of the reasons that I love pairing with other developers. It's it's that sort of process that when I can see that and I can, oh, I saw what you did there. I'm going to take that. I'm stealing that workflow now. That's mine. I love getting to do that. Yeah, I love that. One of my signs for when I'm joining a new team, how I help myself um, identify some of like the standout engineers on the first week or so of joining that team are the people who are receiving requests for help for debugging or pairing. Because to me, that highlights two things. One, that person uh, has probably been there long enough that they have domain knowledge that they can help out with. Two, they probably have some really great debugging strategies that you're talking about. But three, people want to work with them. And that's a really big part of that puzzle is you can be a really great developer, but if nobody wants to work with you, then that's going to make it incredibly challenging for you. And your career won't go nearly as high as it could. Yeah, not just your career as well, but those individuals can actually have an impact on the rest of the team where folks might leave because that really smart engineer on the team also is kind of unpleasant to work with. And so that makes this not a fun job. But shifting around or the, the flip side of that, the positive side of it. So we talked a little bit about what are some real examples of individual productivity and individual efficiency. But I think we also both share the idea that if a 10x engineer is a real concept, it's probably in enabling and supporting the rest of the team such that you are able to multiply the work of the whole team. And I'm interested in what particularly does that look like when you've seen it done the best? The best representation that I've seen is a great deal of pairing. And then that person is essentially the unblocker for their team. So they are the person that is rotating from perhaps around to different teammates and they're pairing with different individuals. They're the ones that are communicating with product managers and they're helping unblock with questions there, answer questions about the product and helping to find scope for future work that is being defined. Those are the engineers that I see that I value the most on a team. Like everyone has a really great value that they bring to a team, but in terms terms of when we're talking about like a really great engineer, someone that has clearly 
worked on their craft and become someone that can help speed up development, those are the things that I typically see. They're the ones that are actively speeding up everyone else around them. While maybe they're not necessarily the ones that are writing the most code themselves because they're helping everybody else out. Yeah, actually, that's a really interesting corollary where likely the folks that we would identify as the outliers are writing less code rather than more code. But similar to some of those ideas, one of the things that I I think I've seen in individuals that really help a team grow and improve over time is in setting and maintaining standards. And I don't mean standards in terms of like, this is our style or our style guide, although I think that is actually a useful version of it, but more so making sure code review is happening, making sure error rates remain low, making sure test coverage is at a level that we feel confident deploying, sort of being the guardian against tech debt. And I think there's a way that that can be done where it becomes almost adversarial, where there's, say, a senior developer on the team is sort of admonishing the rest of the team for not doing a good enough job. But I think the really impactful version of this is a collaborative, supportive version where there's lots of code review and maybe that's enough to communicate where changes in code need to happen or things like that. But often I'll see folks getting code review and not knowing how to receive it, not knowing how to actually implement the things that are suggested. So I think a version of this in the best cases is making sure that that standout engineer is available to also help with the implementation if it's unclear uh, and that there's a clear path to maintaining those standards that are set. I think additionally, one of the things that I've seen is humility and letting the rest of the team feel safe. This is particularly true for someone that's in a more senior role or like what's recognized as a more senior role, but not acting like they have all the answers or like they know everything. Being honest that like, you know what? We all Google. It's true. We do. Uh, But making that be okay. Like if you're having a postmortem, it needs to be blameless. It needs to not be, well, this person made a bug and so they're bad. It's how did we as a team fail here? Because everything we're doing is teamwork. There's actually a, a wonderful Twitter thread by Alice Goldfuss that I can link in, but it has a series of wonderful thoughts around this, around how team leads can enable the rest of the team to feel more comfortable and more open and able to ask the questions when they have them rather than feeling like they need to hide the things that they don't know. So kind of circling back to everything that we've talked about, the idea of like, we don't really believe in this idea of uh, what we call them, uh, broody developers, 10x developers, but we do believe in, in great engineers. And we've certainly experienced great engineers that we've worked with and how we identify those great engineers. And it sounds like some of the things that we look for are pairing and knowledge sharing. Uh, there's also setting standards. I really like that you added that one. And then also the importance of humility. That way, everyone feels like they're in a very comfortable space to learn. And also just for their own benefit, it takes some humility to be really great in this career because there's always going to be so much that you don't know and to continue to advocate uh, learning from others and to be open to learning from others. I do have some fun, fiery comments because right before we were coming to record, I was asking some other thought potters, what are their hot takes for the 10x developer concept? Are you open to hearing some of those? Absolutely, I am. All right, we'll we'll wrap this up on some fire then. (laughs) So this quote comes from Eric Bailey and Eric said, if you think a 10x developer is efficient, consider the cost to clean up after one. Feels very true. <laughs> this one is from Daniel Colson. 10x developers are worse than 10x EX developers. That's probably one of my favorites. All right, this is less of a fiery one and more on brand for us for what we believe in. This one comes from Joelle Kinville. Someone who enables 10 teammates to be 1x better is a 10x engineer. I think that's a really nice, succinct way to highlight what you and I were just saying. Yep, that's the only kind that I really believe in. 
Uh, here's another fiery one. This one comes from Amanda. 10x developers make everyone else's work take 10x longer. And this is an interesting one. This one comes from Jesse. 10x developer is born out of an old paradigm of tech work in which the more semblance a person has to the machines they work with, the more value they are ascribed. In the process, they and the people they work with experience dehumanization. I hadn't considered it from that perspective of trying to take someone and what they do and just turn it into like, what's the output that you can give me and have less consideration for what it takes to get that kind of output from somebody. And then what kind of impact that could have on the rest of the team when you're asking for that sort of output. So that's a very thoughtful consideration that I hadn't thought about before. So that was some fun, fiery takes, which this episode feels a little more fiery for you and I than normally, because you and I do have such a emphasis on staying on the positive side. But I think this one has enough emotion and experience behind it that it was fun just sharing some of like the fiery takes from everybody. But on that note, shall we wrap up? Let's wrap up. Show notes for this episode can be found at bikeshed.fm. This show is produced and edited by Tom Obarski. If you enjoyed listening, one really easy way to support the show is to leave us a quick rating or even a review in iTunes as it really helps other folks find the show. If you have any feedback for this or any of our other episodes, you can reach us at at underscore bike shed on Twitter, or you can reach me at Chris Toomey. And I'm at S. Vicari. Or hosts at bikeshed.fm via email. Thanks so much for listening to The Bike Shed, and we'll see you next week. Bye. Bye. This podcast was brought to you by ThoughtBot. ThoughtBot is your expert design and development partner. Let's make your product and team a success.